0: Welcome to episode 5 of the Haskell Cast. I'm Rain Henricks with my co-host Chris Forno. Our guest today is Brent Yorgi. Brent is the author of the Type Classopedia and the creator of the Diagrams Library. He's also been an editor of the Monad Reader and the Haskell Weekly News. He is a PhD student at the University of Pennsylvania, where he also teaches an introduction to Haskell class. Did I miss anything, Brent? Is that good? Uh, Nothing else, yeah. Awesome. Well, welcome to the Haskell Cast. We're really happy to have you here.
1: Thanks. I'm glad to be here.
0: I thought we'd start out maybe by talking about what Chris likes to call your road to Haskell. How did you discover Haskell? What was it like learning it? How did you decide to make it such a big part of your career? Right. Yeah,
1: that's a very interesting question. So I think the first time I ever saw Haskell, uh, I was in high school. This would have been, uh, you know, like in the late 90s. And uh, so Haskell was... You know, not too old at that point. Um, And I remember downloading Hugs and, like, playing around, you know, in the interpreter. Um, But I never got very far. And I don't even think, you know, I don't know even how much material was out there. Um, It was just something fun I was playing around with and then put aside. Um, And uh, it wasn't until, um, I think it was in 2006 uh, that I first sort of got into Haskell seriously. Um, you know, and I had seen a little bit of functional programming, uh, in like a PL survey course in undergrad, um, that kind of thing did some Lisp for an AI class. So I had had a little bit of experience with, with functional programming. Um, but it was 2006. I think it was my wife, uh, was doing a month long study abroad program. Um, so I was sitting at home, uh, with no one around and, uh, and a boring job. And uh, I think I saw some blog post saying, oh, there's this Haskell language that's pretty cool. And I said, well, it's interesting. Uh, let me check that out. And, uh, <clears throat> and it kind of snowballed from there. I mean, I think if you made a movie of it, it would be one of those things where you sort of have a, a cut shot from that moment to, like, me sitting at a desk surrounded by piles of papers printed out that I had been reading and, you know, scratching my head over some complicated code.
0: Um, Could there be one of those Rocky-style training montages?
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, it would definitely be one of those. Yeah. Um, but it was funny because, you know, in undergrad, I had kind of ruled out programming languages. I had decided that that it wasn't really something I was that interested in. Um, you know, I thought maybe I wanted to do grad school, but I wasn't sure exactly in what subject. Um, so then, but then, you know, this was two, two years out of undergrad that I started learning Haskell and ended up, you know, uh, you know, started learning the language and then ended up reading all these uh, academic papers. And at some point, I had this realization I said, wait a minute, you know, this is programming languages. Why didn't anyone tell me uh, it was this cool? I don't know. Maybe people tried to, but for whatever reason, it didn't stick before. But uh, I don't know. The, the process for me, I think because I had had some exposure before uh, a few times um, and it was just something that seemed fun, I was really motivated and I had a lot of time. Um, you know, it, the process for me was pretty smooth and sort of, um, learning it. Um, you know, I don't know if, if, yeah, I know some people, if they come to it cold, they, they kind of have, have difficulties or have to start several times, but
0: did you start out with more uh, of a mathematical background?
1: Yeah. I mean, I've always really loved math. And, um, so I mean, in undergrad, I, I was a computer science major. I technically was not a double major with math, but during my senior year, I think there were some of my, some of the math professors that were surprised to find out that I was not actually a math major. Um, I just took all the math classes that I wanted. So I definitely had a strong math background already at that point. Uh, And I think that probably helped a lot too, um, just in picking up the abstractions. But, you know, and, and certainly I'm sure we'll talk more about this later, but, you know, that's a big part of sort of my identity as a Haskell programmer that I'm always looking for, you know, elegant mathematical abstractions that that are underlying whatever I'm working on. Um, and I think that's one of the things that I love about the community that or the culture surrounding Haskell. Um, it's not just me that does that. So,
0: Yeah. One of the, one of the things that really got me into the mathematics uh, the algebra and the category theory and how it relates to Haskell was your uh, monoid's pearl. Mm-hmm. Re- reading that about how diagrams form a monoid and how you can, join them together in that way is is what sort of put the spark that these aren't it isn't really just abstract nonsense right there are actual practical applications so how do you approach tying Haskell to the the abstractions that math provides do you start by do you have a problem statement in Haskell and then you go you know you start looking through math to find good good solutions (laughs) like
1: yeah that's a good question and I think that, that, uh, the Monoids Pearl paper that you referenced uh, is a good example of that. Um, you know, I think the content of that paper, um, you know, really was several years in, in the making. Um, and it's a very nonlinear sort of process. Um, you know, I wish it was nice and simple where you just say, okay, I'm going to write down my problem statement and then I'm going to find some math that fits and then I'm done. Um, but uh, it really doesn't work that way. And, it's really more an issue of writing something, trying to get it to work, and, and along the way sort of always trying to think about what is the sort of abstract essence of what I'm doing and, and kind of iterating on that. And you, you discover, you, know, you make some discovery and you are able to structure your code in a different way and it becomes a little more elegant. Um, but then that leads to other problems and then you realize that, you know, this abstraction doesn't quite capture everything and so you need to you know, go back to the drawing board. You know, knowing a lot of abstractions certainly helps um, because you need to be able to recognize patterns. But sometimes I've come to mathematical abstractions from the other direction. So, uh, for example, in in this in my diagrams library, you know, we now make a distinction at the type level between vectors and points, which is something that a lot of people that just sort of sit down and write down some code for doing for doing computational graphics stuff. And I say, well, you know, a point or vector, it's the same thing. It's just a pair of coordinates, you know. But it turns out that these things form what's called an affine space. And I had never heard of an affine space. And I did this, you know, the first version of diagrams did this, conflated them, (laughs) and ran into some bugs and realized, you know, that, oh, this isn't isn't right. These are different. And then kind of through that, found out about affine spaces and was able to uh, structure
0: the code that way. So... And it seems like – so there's also a, there's a linear library that Edward Komet wrote, which is yeah sort of the opposite approach, which is here are all the mathematical concepts. Let's reify them as Haskell libraries, which is just what he does right. all right. over the place. <laughs> yeah,
1: indeed. Yeah, linear is really nice. I, um, so Diagrams actually uses Connell Elliott's vector space package. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we could probably use linear instead. Um, at this point, it's just – it would be a lot of work to switch, and I don't you know, think both, both would serve our purpose as well
2: yeah so let's let's talk a little bit about diagrams, especially since I saw that uh, you released version one point zero pretty recently that's right, yeah so what exactly does it give someone and and maybe you can explain kind of at a high level um what it improves on as far as maybe tixie or or somebody else who's been using uh some sort of programming graphics uh,
1: system right right so there's sort of two, well, there's a lot of things, but so in comparison to, to um, Tixie one of the biggest benefits is that uh, it's so well, diagrams is embedded in Haskell and Tixie is embedded in LaTeX and uh, LaTeX as a programming language is uh, not very nice for, for, you know, doing anything other than typesetting documents. So if you if you need to compute anything, or if you want to take some data and visualize the data, or if you want to you know write a program to get some data from somewhere and then you know make a picture out of it, doing that in Tixie is gonna be a real pain in the butt. Uh and what people end up doing is they write another program in some other language that outputs Tixie or outputs you know something that Tixie can read in and and make a diagram. Um and that's just it's just extra, you know, extra layers and places where you can mess things up. Um, so the fact that diagrams is embedded in this powerful language Haskell, uh, which has a huge ecosystem of other stuff that you can integrate it with, um, is is really nice.
2: Yeah. The problem with tech is you're dealing with something with a lot of, I don't know. You can call it macro substitution or, or yeah. Um...
1: Yeah, yeah 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 yeah. So
2: exactly. so it's a uh, it's basically a way to create pictures, um, diagrams, images, graphs, whatever you, you want to call it, uh, in a programming language. And, and, uh, maybe you can explain your motivation for writing it. You were working on your blog, I, I believe.
1: Yeah. So this was, um, I not you know, I don't even remember the, the details, but this was many years ago. Um, so I have, I have two blogs. I have, um, one that's sort of about Haskell and, um, and academic stuff and another that's, that's, uh sort of explaining cool beautiful math sort of it was originally aimed at a at a high school audience but um i started it when i was teaching high school math but uh it's really you know for anyone but i think it was on that blog i was writing some blog post and i wanted to illustrate something um with a picture and i knew exactly the picture that i wanted um but it was going to be really tedious to draw it in inkscape or whatever um and i said well okay surely there has to be some kind of software out there that will let me you know generate a you know a picture like this uh and i looked around and certainly there 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 is software that lets you generate pictures but uh none of it looked like you know what what i thought it should look like uh and so with typical programmer hubris i said well how hard can this be so uh you know i i hacked something up in 2 weeks and it made some pictures. I, I'm pretty sure it could not make the picture that I, I wanted it to make in the first place. Um, and then I spent about a year sort of thinking about it and redesigning it and uh, and then sort of rewrote it from scratch and and uh, have been working on that one since. So um, that was that was the genesis of it. And I still use it a lot. I mean, for for make, for illustrating things on my blog, in, in papers that I write. Um, so it's really been successful in, in that sense, just in scratching my own personal itches. Um, so tying that back to tech, I, I saw that it has
2: uh, at least some of the functionality of Metafont in it as well. How, how much of a process was that to implement, and how complete is the, uh, the implementation? Oh,
1: it's, yeah, so it's only one, actually, one small piece of Metafont, um, which is a very cool piece. But So what it does, um, Metafont had this has this syntax for describing... Uh, paths uh, where you can not just say you know I want the path to pass through these points, um, but uh, you know when it passes through this point, I want the the tangent line to have this slope, and I want the the line between these points to be sort of curvier or less curvy. There's various sort of parameters you can control, and then it uh, solves a big uh, big system of linear equations and generates a nice spline that that fits all your parameters. Um so yeah so we have that now so uh and actually I had well I I started the implementation I thought this would be cool um and I got about halfway and and sort of got really confused and gave up uh and put it aside and then uh so Daniel Berge, uh who's been working on diagrams recently picked it back up and and finished it off and did a really fantastic job so there's even a nice little uh I mean you can give it a string with literal metafont syntax or we also have a little a little sort of DSL where um, you can use Haskell combinators to build up these, uh, these paths with constraints. Um, so that's fun. That gives you a nice, it's a nice declarative way to, to talk about curved paths with some nice theory behind it that says, you know, we can always solve this to find a path that meets these constraints and looks nice in some sense.
0: Well, maybe let's uh, switch gears for a moment and talk about Type Classopedia. So what level is the type encyclopedia targeted for? Are there prerequisites for Haskellers to come in and be able to use that information?
1: Yeah, I think certainly there are prerequisites and I um I think it even says in the introduction um but I mean, you know, pretty much the you know the basics you need to understand what types are and um you know understand about functions and currying and type classes and things like that. Um <clears throat> but so it assumes that you that you sort of understand the basics of Haskell the language, but not that you know a lot about sort of the library uh ecosystem that's grown up uh, around haskell right um, although I guess some some of the stuff that's in the type classopedia is in fact in the the Haskell standard um, but um, but even so it still kind of feels like you know you wouldn't have to have that stuff you could still have Haskell without. Uh, the functor type class, or whatever um, so yeah it was <clears throat> so i mean it's it's it was a long time ago that I wrote it um, at the time i think uh I think I just saw a way that I could contribute i mean this is something I really enjoy this sort of process of of synthesizing a lot of information and then um presenting it in a way that's accessible uh and and engaging to people. So I saw this as a way that I could contribute. Um, I thought I had a pretty good grasp on on some of that stuff, so I decided to write. I think I, I mean, originally I published it in the Monad Reader. Um, and I think I probably wrote half the article uh, in the month before the deadline and half of it the night before. Uh, so I think everything about monads and arrows was all written the day before uh, the deadline. But I think I then revised it some more after that. But anyway um yeah and you know I'm, it's actually it's been really surprising and gratifying sort of how much traction it's gained in the community um i quite often get people coming up to me and saying you know oh thanks so much for the Type classopedia you know it really that was really where i began to feel like i was you know grokking some of this stuff and um so that's that's really cool and i'm really i'm really glad that it's it's been able to be that for people what
2: about a what about a mathematics background? So you know somebody who comes in and looks at this starts to see category theory and might uh, get a bit freaked out. Is 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 that required?
1: Uh, I don't think so. I mean, <clears throat> so I think in the type classopedia I do you know I, I make some comments saying well if you know category theory you know this is X Y Z but uh, I try to present it in a way that that it makes it clear that it's not. That's not required. Um, so I mean, and I think at the time I wrote it, I didn't even know very much category theory. Um, I know more now. I still wouldn't say I know a lot, um, although everything is relative. So relative to most people in the world, I know a lot of category theory. <laughs> um, but uh, you know, category theory is something that I love, and I, I really do get a lot of mileage out of out of it. Um, but yeah, it's certainly. I think I think people come to the community and they see other people being really excited about it and they misinterpret that as, you know, this is something you have to know to
0: learn this stuff. Um, so that actually brings up a question I wanted to ask you, which is, do you feel like developers need to know these abstract algebra and category theory concepts to, to be successful with Haskell?
1: I think to really be successful with Haskell, you, you certainly need to, you know, at least you, you need to understand... Some of what's in the type classopedia I wouldn't say all because I did you know there is some kind of esoteric stuff in there, but um you know a good portion of it, and well i don't know is is understanding the type classopedia the same thing as you know understanding category theory or abstract algebra or whatever um, i don't know, I would say maybe it is, but I don't think you need to understand category theory and abstract algebra in the way that people think. That means like you have to go take
0: a category theory class
1: because there's a lot of different approaches to these subjects um, and a lot of different sort of ways to present them.
0: And I've seen, I've seen Haskell written with a a wide variety of of levels of abstraction, everything from very imperative. Right. Right. And it seems like people are able to get stuff done everywhere in that space.
1: Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think, yeah, to, to be able to sort of get, the, the most mileage out of, out of the existing e- library ecosystem, you know, you have to, you have to understand the sorts of abstractions that are going to come up a lot. Um, so you have to understand more than just the IO monad, but you don't have to understand con extensions. So, you know, I don't know. And, but you can also get a lot done without, you know, having, without using a lot of uh, the library ecosystem. So yeah. Yeah, I don't think there's a right, a wrong way to, to do that.
0: So what's the role for you personally in the in the Haskell you write today of some of these you know higher order abstractions
1: uh, that's a good question um, so certainly um you know in within diagrams um we um, use some of these things quite a bit um, you know there's definitely there's lots of things in diagrams that are functors there's lots of monoids. There's some applicative functors. Um, you know, nothing in diagrams itself is a monad, um, but certainly in writing some of the backends, like um, you know, the Cairo backend uses a, a rendering monad. Um, actually, most of the backends use use monads. Um, you know, and then of course there's there's all sorts of crazy type system extensions that we make use of. Um, you know, and then in some of my my research. Um, which is not diagrams, but um, you know, some of that really goes off the deep end. Uh, but in a sense, some of that is it really should be written in Agda, but we're writing it in Haskell <laughs> um to be able to run it. So
0: it seems like there's a a relatively short list of some of the most fruitful concepts. You mentioned monoids, functors, applicatives. And a lot of those are are, are covered in the in the type encyclopedia. but maybe there's a there's a a need for an, uh, an algebra opedia pedia for, for the uses of semi-groups and monoids and, and some of those structures. And you cover a lot of that in the Monoids Pearl, which is why I love it so much, but there are lots right. of those structures.
1: Sure. You know, so beyond, beyond semi-groups and, and monoids, you know, you can talk about groups, but groups tend not to come up as much. Um, I'm not sure I understand exactly why that is. Maybe part of it is that, you know... A lot of things don't have inverses uh, because you can't, you, you know, inverses destroy information. Uh, and in you know, when you're computing, you often don't want to destroy information. So, um, you know, so I don't know that I know that I have a bunch of examples of a sort of richer space of algebraic things that are as useful. But there was a, an interesting paper at... Uh, um, at ICFP, or maybe it was the Haskell Symposium this past year, um, by uh, Mario Blazovich, I think is his name, um, where he, he has this whole hierarchy of, of basically factored monoid into uh, a whole bunch of different sorts of things. Um, and that's, that's really interesting, and I, I, it'll be interesting to see if that, um, how that plays out, if, it, if that turns out to be um, some more useful abstractions.
0: There's a Wikipedia page on variations of semi-groups, yeah. With a zero, with a cancelative element, various things. There are about yeah, yeah, 100 a hundred of them. <laughs> right. Yeah. And it seems like you could point to each one and then say, yeah. all right, well, what can we do in Haskell with this? And I've right, seen right. Russell Connor has a great blog post about the use of tropical star semi-rings.
1: Yeah, you know, that's what I was just gonna say. I, I I realized just as you were saying that, that, you know, uh yeah, rings and variations on rings, um there's a whole bunch of them and, and yeah, I have seen uh some really cool applications of that. Um, there's a series of blog posts by um uh, Ken Shan, I think, and um I think he co-wrote them with someone else. Uh I'll I'll have to, you know, I'll find it later and I'll send you the the, the URL or something. Um but it was uh it was about solving this this sort of problem where um you know it was something like You know, if you list out the first billion numbers in English spelled out in words, you know, where is the nine thousandth E or, you know, something something like that. Uh, And they solved in this really, really clever way by building this this I think it was called a semi near ring uh, and and sort of interpreted it in different. So they they built up this algebra and then interpreted it in different ways to get out information that they were interested in. Um, And that was really, really clever
0: yeah for me uh i've gotten some of this from just talking to edward commit and i say hey here's a structure what do you do with it he says oh well you can do this and this and this but Uh, i don't i don't have that mapping generally for that list of of semi-group variations for rings like structures right there's probably a lot of cool stuff and there's probably literature all over the math community for what you know what they're doing with them
1: yeah exactly yep yeah there was a yeah, there's another paper in the in uh, ICFP or the Haskell Symposium this year that I'm re- remembering um, that was about, uh, I'm not going to be able to remember it now off the top of my head, but but along the similar lines, doing some really, really cool things with, um, I guess they were looking at, at some algorithms in that come up in linear algebra um, and noting that, in fact, you don't need a full vector space to do these algorithms over, you just need a, a, a semi-ring or something. Or a ring or something like that, and and you get interesting algorithms to fall out of it by instantiating it with different different rings. So, so you we're talking about mathematical abstractions. Um,
2: what about the role of of other abstractions? I know that uh, part of your teaching is teaching about abstractions. Do you think that? Um, Abstractions from math just tend to be generally more useful, or should should all computer science abstractions be rigorously defined in math, or, or are others useful? I know that some are a bit leaky, uh, but exist in the sort of real world of of engineering. What's your thoughts mm-hmm. on those? Um,
1: let's see. It's a good question. <clears throat> I mean, I think that. I think ultimately, I I, I see that the, the two often end up meeting in the middle, um, where you know you say, well, you know, on the engineering or computer science side, we we made some abstraction and it you know and it works. We can't really explain it, or we don't have a good formalism for it. But if you really dig deeper, you can you can find that there are nice ways to describe what was going on. Um, you know, and I think maybe the kinds of things that people tend to do or that, that people tend to be able to wrap their heads around are the things that have, you know, nice abstractions, nice mathematical abstractions at their, at their core. Um, so I'm not, I'm not sure that there has to be a, uh, a divide between the two. And I think, um, uh, Yeah
2: well let's let's say I'm playing devil's advocate here and and starting a religious war by talking about patterns and okay. uh there's all these you know patterns that have come up that that really don't at first glance at least to me seem like uh something from from math
1: sorry, you're talking about like uh like the gang of four book those sorts of patterns exactly okay,
0: yeah, we're going to get flames so hard for this. <laughs> <laughs>
2: We're talking about it neutrally from a from a, curios, <laughs> a curious curious uh, scientific perspective. Okay,
1: sounds good. So, so what's the question then?
2: So, so, the question is that a lot of these these patterns are kind of what uh, seems like engineers have discovered from from looking at their code or or doing case studies and so on, and, and the way they're okay. described is definitely not. You know, in in mathematical terms, at least not for the sure. majority of them. You know, visitor and and uh, you know, I, I don't know most of them, unfortunately. But right. um, but they well, then, they so, describe behavior more than right. more than a mathematical concept.
1: So you just so I don't I don't know a lot about about patterns. Um, but you just said visitor, and I think so. That's the one where you well okay. As I recall, my intuition is that visitor has something to do with like. Traversable or something like that. I mean, so in other words, there. I think there are mathematical abstractions that that you can that you can match up with these often. Um, just because they're not described in that way, it doesn't mean uh, it can't be. Um, and sometimes that's that's fruitful.
2: Yeah. So I guess this is a challenge to the listeners to uh, to come up with some some abstractions that can't be formulated in terms of
0: math negative proofs are hard i don't know uh kale gibbert has a quote that i love which is only slightly trolling of um, imperative programmers which is that design patterns are just libraries your language isn't expressive enough to write <laughs> right <laughs> and what, one of the things i love about haskell is that if you want a monad you literally write a library
1: it's right. a very small mm-hmm.
0: library that, that defines what a monad is and then it's defined for you and it's not a, yeah. an implicit understanding of a pattern
1: right yeah and i i mean i i think i i believe that statement on some level and i think you know another way of saying it is you know does design patterns arise when um your language doesn't have the right sorts of abstraction right because you know we all know oh, don't repeat yourself right that's the the mantra of programming often and what a design pattern is exactly the sort of thing where you end up repeating this pattern so you'd like to be able to abstract out the repetition um but if your language doesn't have the right mechanisms for abstraction uh then you can't and you need a pattern you know and i think i i'd have to think a while to to figure out to give a good example but i'm sure these sorts of design patterns exist in haskell too so I'm not trying to say, oh, Haskell, you don't need design patterns. Well, we do have them. But they're just other things that Haskell doesn't let, that Haskell doesn't let you abstract. Um, so it would be interesting to, to think about that and come up with a good example. But
0: So to, to get back to the visitor example specifically, a visitor is a way to separate the behavior you want to apply to members of, a, of some structure mm-hmm. with the way that structure is organized. So it is very much a, a traversable or a foldable yeah. sort of pattern. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, it sounds kind of like functor, but but if you
1: throw effects in there then then you need something like traversable to model it. Right. But
0: but it's interesting when we when we talk about traversable, we can say what are the types that tells us a lot right there? What are any laws that it has to to follow? Mm-hmm. You know, starting with the right. functor laws, that tells us a lot. It gives us a lot of stuff for free actually. Right. And with with visitor, while it's a useful pattern, all of that is implicit.
1: Yeah, it's very hard to reason about your code that you've written using the visitor pattern, um, where you don't
0: It's better than you code you written about without it. it. From,
1: <laughs> yeah, sure, but you have to kind of reason about it from scratch each time. Right. Um, yeah.
0: And it, it mostly my experience is that they provide a shared vocabulary more than they provide an explicit formalism for Sure. for what you're doing. Yeah, yeah. It'd be interesting to think about and probably not right now, but what you could do to make those those things more formal in an imperative language is is there much hmm. is there much more room for that expressiveness?
1: Yeah, I don't know. I I don't see why not. Um but yeah, I don't know.
2: So we've we've sort we've sort of wandered on to the the topic of of the craft of of programming and and elegance and readability and and so on. And as I was reading your blog, I couldn't help but think that uh, you remind me a lot of of Donald Knuth with this sort of obsession on on beautiful code and beautiful presentation and and so on so how, how much did his work inspire your work
1: um, wow well i'm I'm quite honored to be compared to Donald Knuth. I'm not sure that it's merited but um, but but you're right we do uh certainly share uh, that interest in, in beautiful presentation, uh, of things. Um, and, uh, yeah, certainly I think, um, he's, he's certainly influenced me. Um, you know, I, I, don't think directly, but, but I think just in, in reading some of the stuff that he's written and, and saying, you know, this is the way it ought to be done. Um, and sort of being inspired by that. Um, you know, I, I actually, I haven't read a lot of the Art of Computer Programming. I've not read at all. Um, but I've read some shorter things that he's written in. Um, and I've read a few of the, the sort of uh, pieces that he's been putting out of Volume 4, uh, which has more to do with combinatorics, which is something another thing that I'm really interested in. I think if you claimed that you read most
2: of the Art of Computer Programming, yeah. we'd have to call you out on that one. Yeah, yeah, right, exactly. So... sort of related to Haskell is, is, do you think we're ever going to get past tech? You know, we, we, I've seen some, some people, you know, saying, look, it's, it's a horrible language uh, for programming in, you know, we need, we need something else, but there's so much momentum behind it. Yeah.
1: Yeah. That's, that's a really interesting question. I mean, to be honest, I think it's also a horrible language for, for typesetting things in, uh, it's just really good at typesetting. Uh, it's just not much fun to use. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I've, I've thought about that, but it's, it's, it's one of those things we just need someone to come along who is, who is as smart and full of hubris as Don Knuth, who can actually believe that they can make something better and then actually pull it off. Um, and, and th- that combination is rare, I think. And
0: by the way, the smart there is very important. Hubris is not, yeah. it's not going to be sufficient. Yeah, I know, exactly.
1: Right, because <laughs> right, there's a lot of people who, who think they can make something better than tech, and a lot of people have tried and end up with half-working systems that are abandoned, you know. So, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if we'll ever get something better. Um, but yeah, you know, knowing what we know now about, about programming language design uh, seems like, you know, there ought to be something a lot better, but, um, but obviously, you know, typesetting is a really hard domain and there's a lot of things that tech does right. Uh, so to, to replace it would be a ton of work, obviously. And just, yeah. you know, of course you mentioned that the social work of sort of how do you replace this very, very entrenched, uh, software. I'm not, you know, I don't know. And I, Yeah, that would be, it
0: would be, it would be tough. Chris, would you like to move on to something completely different?
2: And now for something completely different.
0: I'm, I'm, I'm really interested in what's new in diagrams one and where you plan to go in the future. So, so yeah, we released diagrams one,
1: um, just a couple months ago. I think, uh, we released it on the day I, I gave a talk at the New York Haskell users group, which, uh, the video I think was just finally posted. Um, and so either today or tomorrow I think we're we're gonna actually post an official announcement of the 1.0 release. So
0: we are screening um, I'm
1: I'm very excited. Yeah, exactly. No, it's great. Um, you know a lot of people know about it. We weren't it wasn't a secret, but uh we haven't like you know posted a big uh announcement about it. Um, but there's a lot of really exciting stuff. So um one of the most exciting things I think um is uh is that is that we now have support for arrows so you can you can have different things you know in a diagram and then say i want you to draw an arrow between these things and um you know in fact this was one of the original things i I wrote this original version in two weeks uh and then kind of had to scrap it one of the things was I wanted arrows and I couldn't do it I, I had sort of design designed myself into a corner and it wouldn't I couldn't make arrows fit
0: so now we can finally draw um, commutativity diagrams
1: yes you can
2: yeah yeah let's um, be clear that we're talking about actual arrows you you draw not the uh, the other type of arrow
1: so so Jeff Rosenbluth uh, is another diagrams developer who did most of the work on this the arrows feature and uh you know it's one of those things that surprisingly tricky to do to do right there's lots of i think i said this in my talk at the new york Haskell users group there's lots of ways for arrows to look wrong uh, and when when they look right you don't really notice them and when they look wrong you're like well that looks terrible you know so um but yeah that's so that's really exciting so so we have that now um, what are some of the other things um, we have uh uh something ryan yates worked on uh path offsets so if you have a path you know, some kind of line through space, you can find another path that's uh, sort of offset from it by a constant uh, constant distance. So you can use that, you know, I don't know, various artistic things you could use it for. You can also sort of use it to simulate stroking a path. So when you draw a path, you know, you get some uh, region with some width, you know, and typically your the back end kind of does that. Um But you can sort of do that internally now and get another path object that represents the stroked version and do something with that. Um, What are some other things we have? Um, So the the metafont stuff that that we mentioned earlier. Um, We have a bunch more sort of tutorials. Um, We have um, uh, a nice little little framework for making uh, sort of command-line-driven... Programs for generating diagrams, so you can give it a function from, say, you know, it takes an int and a color and it gives you a diagram, and that it automatically turns into a program that takes an int and a color on the command line and will generate that diagram. Um, so that's nice. You could you could use that, f- say, say you have some, uh, you know, some data sets that you want to visualize, and you want to visualize them in some specific way. So you write a little program. A little function that that takes in such a data set, uh, maybe with some options, and outputs a diagram. And you can now really easily build a little uh, command line thing that takes in uh, the file name of the data set and a bunch of options as flags, and then outputs a diagram for you. Um, so that's a that's a nice little feature. Um, there's probably some other things that I'm forgetting, but um, but yeah, uh, that's so that's some of the new stuff that's in 1.0 um some places where we're heading with it um well so diagrams currently does have some support for animations um you can build up these these uh active values uh it's a it's a, an applicative functor and so you can use all the applicative machinery to to build animations but in in a sense it was sort of always well i won't say a hack but I didn't quite understand the semantics of it very well and um so together with uh, Andy Gill and Nick Wu, we've been uh, sort of working on a, a complete rewrite of uh, of this active thing based on a much cleaner semantics. Um, and it's actually based on two categories, if you must know. But you don't need to know that to use the library, right? Um, so I, I really think that'll work out nicely. Uh, and, and then at the same time, uh, some of the people are working on some much nicer uh, support within some of the diagrams backends for generating animations. So like right now, if you make an animation, the only thing you can do uh, is output a directory full of uh, images as frames. Um, and then you have to put them together into an animation yourself. Um, and I think uh, Jeff Rosenbluth has been working together with um, uh, Vincent. I forget his last name, but he's the author of uh, the juicy pixels library. They've been putting together uh, uh, something that that will let you sort of directly generate a, like an animated GIF or something like that uh, without ever writing the intermediate files to disk. Um, so that should be that'll be fun. I think I think people will have a lot of fun building little animations um, using diagrams. So so how much does this work with animations
2: intersect with uh, Connell Elliott's work with functional reactive programming and his I think it was Pan I'm thinking of yeah
1: yeah. So so the it certainly does intersect and and you know the the big unifying thread is is thinking of animations as as functions from time to to diagrams. Um, that's sort of the underlying semantics. Um, yeah you know, one of the biggest differences is that uh all the work on like this work I was talking about with with Andy Gill and Nick Wu um. We're we're not we don't have reactivity in the picture at all, um, so it's just building a, a a static animation, if you will. Um, <clears throat> so of course that simplifies a lot of things, um, but there's still a lot of interesting questions uh, there. So like we've sort of taken a, a simpler piece of the design space and tried to really understand that well, um, but there certainly is a lot of relationship there. And also some of Paul Hudak's work on uh, polymorphic temporal media. There's a lot of relationship there, too.
2: So I, I see uh, I start I've seen this start to get used for data set visualizations. And I, I think as as interest grows in, you know, data science or or whatever we want to call it now, um, there's there's a lot of interest in D3 and And so on, are you thinking that that you can tackle that space, or is that something you're interested in long term?
1: Yeah, I think so. Um, so. I'm not that familiar with d3. I mean I've seen a lot of what it can do. It's really impressive. Um, I've never written any d3 code myself. Um, so <clears throat> you know data visualization is not it's not what I'm personally interested in. Um, so that, that's not sort of why developed diagrams. Um, I think that building a data visualization library or toolkit on top of diagrams could work really well. Um, and there have been a few people that have, that have sort of talked about, you know, maybe doing something like that. Um, what we do have right now is that uh, the, the Haskell chart library, um, uh, Jan Bracker did his uh, a Google Summer of Code project on porting it to use diagrams as a backend. Um, so chart, you know, chart, um, it, uh, you know, it can, it can make like a a few certain types of charts. Um, and now that it uses diagrams as a backend, that means that you can then anything that diagrams has a backend for, you can, you can use with charts. Um, but it's not a, it's not sort of a general purpose data visualization toolkit. Right. And so that's what I'm hoping that someone will build on top of diagrams. Um, it won't be me, but. I think it would work really well for that.
0: So I noticed uh, that you started writing a guide for the Catster episodes on Mm -hmm. YouTube, and I have just been watching those as well. So I am excited that you have. Great, I'm going to go read that now. So it it seems like there's a lot of opportunity now for some really good education on both cat theory and abstract algebra to make it available to to people who are not in uh, you know a math program in in university. Yeah. And a. Woody has some category theory lectures on video on YouTube. Mm-hmm. Those are great. Yeah. Yeah. But I want more. Where can I get more? <laughs> who's going to who's going to put this out there?
1: Uh, I don't know. Oh, that's a good question. I really hope that uh that I get a chance at some point to teach a cl- a course on sort of the intersection of category theory and functional programming. Um
0: That's exactly I know what that I want. um Exactly.
1: Yeah, so um um Mikhail uh, what's his last name? I don't know how to pronounce it. Uh, Vedmo Johansen. Um, he uh, he taught a course like this uh, a while ago, and he had some lecture notes from that. Um, I'm not sure what what happened to that. I think he was maybe thinking of turning it into, you know, something a little more like some kind of book or something. I'm not sure where that went. Um, but that was exactly that. He he sort of used Haskell as a vehicle for teaching category theory to his students. I think this was it. At Stanford or something like that.
0: And are those lecture um, notes available outside of the class?
1: Uh, they they used to be. I don't know if they still are. Um, well,
0: I might so I might ask you about look, that yeah. after this because sure, that sounds sure, yeah. if I can include that for people. My my yeah. issue is I don't have an academic background, so the world of lectures and, and and things like that is still a walled garden for me. And so every now and then someone will say, Well, here's a link to some random professors page and here is a bunch of stuff that they have and now it's like i've, right, I've, right. I've unlocked a treasure chest right but it's yeah, right. very right. sporadic yeah, exactly
1: yep i think i think graham hutton has some nice category theory lecture notes too um i know those are available but so we we almost missed the chance to
2: ask you about uh, what it's like teaching an introduction to haskell class Hmm, I, sure. I assume the students are, are rather kind of self selected if they're picking something with, with Haskell in the title.
1: Yeah, they are. That's true. Um so I taught I taught the course three times. Um so this was uh this was a, a sort of half credit course. Um so met once a week for like an hour and a half um uh at, at the University of Pennsylvania. Um <clears throat> and uh yeah it was a lot of fun and that, that certainly has shaped the way that I think about um, about teaching and about Haskell. Um, and, you know, as you said, it was, it was certainly self-selecting. So I think it would be, it's very different than teaching, um, like an introductory course to, to college freshmen or like a required intro course using Haskell. That would be a very different experience. Um, but at the same time, I mean, the students that would take it, um, you know a lot of them didn't know any Haskell at all. Uh, they were just interested you know, they kind of heard about it or um, whatever <clears throat> so but um but yeah, a lot of them picked it up really well. I'm trying to think sort of what if there were any sort of bigger lessons that i
2: um, was, was there a consistent uh, hurdle that that they had uh difficulty
1: uh, getting over? Yeah. Um <clears throat> so I think um so one interesting hurdle that that I came across that I think I did a better job the third time I taught it, um, is that students got you know, students were doing really well right up, up until about we hit applicative functors. Uh and then they started getting really confused. Um and I think um you know, and then we did monads, but they didn't really—they were just very confused, and I don't think any of it clicked very well enough. for You know, some of them, the best students, they got it, and they, you know, uh, were able to go on. But, but um, you know, maybe you could say, well, you just went through it too fast. And maybe that's true. But I think a a big thing that I realized, and I think I had a blog post about this a while ago, is that um, when you're thinking about uh, you know, any of these these. Things like functor, applicative, monad, right? They define an interface, um, and you know, there's there's actually two different activities that you can talk about. You can talk about implementing uh, an instance. So you know, say, well, okay, implement the monad instance for you know, uh, you know the function arrow, um, <clears throat> and then there's programming, you know, programming on top of the interface sort of using the monad abstraction to write programs. Those are two very different activities. And I think I didn't do a good enough job separating those. And students got really confused. They would mix the levels up, right? They would, they were trying, I was asking them to program against the interface and they were thinking about the implementation uh, or vice versa. And um, I don't know, I think, so there's a, a larger issue here of, you know, a lot of computer science and math really is all about this sort of moving up and down between different levels of, of abstraction. Um, and, you know, being a good programmer, being a good mathematician is a lot about training yourself to be able to move between these different levels of abstraction and not get them mixed up um, and sort of be able to switch in your head. And I think that's something we need to explicitly teach students. Um, you know, maybe right now it's like, well, the students that are already inclined to do that anyway, get it. And the students that, that don't understand that get confused. Um, But maybe there's a way that we can explicitly teach uh, moving between levels of abstraction. So I don't know. I haven't figured that all out, but um, it was interesting. So the third time I taught the course, I I split applicative into two classes and the one I just focused on uh, implementing it. And the other, I just focused on, okay, Let's forget about any specific instances. You know, what can we do with this interface in general? Uh, and I think that worked a lot better, separating it like that. So.
0: so what do you think about Haskell as a general purpose language for teaching functional program or for teaching programming, for teaching computer science? I know uh, University of Texas at Austin used to use Haskell, I think, in the 90s. Yeah. I think I even remember... Yeah. Dijkstra saying, hey, no, we can't use Java. We have to keep using Haskell. It's better. Yeah, yeah. And then he yeah, left, I and just, then they switched. <laughs> yeah,
1: exactly. Yeah, um, you know, that's an interesting question. I don't know. As much as I love Haskell, um, I don't know. I kind of go back and forth on this. Um, so actually here at Penn, um, we um, we now teach our intro course um, the first half in OCaml and the second half in Java, um, and I think you know the the PL people here would would love to teach the whole course in OCaml, but sort of for pragmatic reasons, you know, all, a lot of the downstream courses say, well, they have to know Java, so well, that's fine. But <clears throat> um, but the reason you know, so why did they choose OCaml and not and not Haskell? Um, um, you know I think one of the biggest hang ups is is that you can't it's very hard to reason about time and space usage in Haskell and that's traditionally a big part of you know an introductory education in computer science um, and i until we really understand how to do that in Haskell uh, it's just really hard to uh you know, you you just have to say, well, we're going to learn this language and well, don't worry if your program is not efficient. Uh, you will learn that in your third year. I mean, (laughs) it's just, that's kind of doesn't, it doesn't cut it. Um, and, and I don't know. And, and I think there is, there is also just, there's just a lot of abstraction and a lot of details to get through. Um, to, uh, to understand the language, to, you know, to, to work in it. Um, that's something I definitely ran up against teaching my intro course, just figuring out how to, how to sequence all of the, the, you know, introductory things and how to make sure that, you know, well, I can't talk about this yet because I haven't talked about this and figuring out a good order and, and sort of, it just felt like there was more and more and more stuff that I had to cover that I was taking for granted. Um, so for also for that reason, it seems like it might not be the best as an introductory language. Um, that you might want something with a little bit simpler syntax, maybe with not so many features, or you know, or maybe even a, a you know a dialect of Haskell that that was simpler. So I know you know there used to be this this uh, Helium project um, that had sort of like language levels for Haskell where you had, uh, and I think that could be really really great. Um, but that's a lot of engineering work. Um, to make something like that happen, which is why, you know, helium was sort of an academic exercise and then no one's maintaining it now. So
0: I don't, I don't know if it's, it's industry pressure as well. You know, we're sort of creating a, a self-fulfilling prophecy that you train people in Java so they can enter the Java workforce. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, I remember yeah. when SICP moved from, from scheme to Python and I died a little bit inside. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, I don't know. So you have a little bit of experience, you know, much more than most people with, with teaching beginners and introductory level Haskell. My experience has been that Haskell doesn't have a very good story for beginners, that it requires a lot of self-direction and even things like the type class which are great resources. You have to know that it exists. You have to go find it. Sure. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Are we missing, do we need better books? Like what kind of resources would help fix this problem?
1: yeah that's a that's a good question um yeah better books better you know maybe it doesn't even have to be books it could be you know some kind of webs interactive website with videos and and you get
0: to type in a box and and it i don't know but um for me school of haskell haskell has been the best resource i've found yeah and i i, I hope people go out and write a bunch of school of haskell tutorials yeah i mean
1: yeah school of haskell is definitely heading in a in a cool direction. I mean, unfortunately, you know, that's not getting beginners to to learn programming with Haskell is not at all uh, uh, FP complete's goal, and so I, I don't I don't see them putting a lot more effort into developing school of Haskell in that direction. But I think, you know, taking some of the ideas from that, um, yeah, it could work well. I mean, you know, the problem, of course, is that all of this takes a lot a real a lot of time to develop, and it's not just about the technology. You know, developing the the material and figuring out how to order things and how to explain things in good ways—that's it's really tough and it takes a lot of time. And you know, someone just needs to come along that that they really have a passion for that and uh, put the time and effort into it. So, so before we wrap up, uh, Brent, what what would
2: you like to talk about or 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 introduce to the listeners that we haven't covered yet? Or is anything on the horizon for you? Uh, are you just uh, continuing along the path with uh, with diagrams? And uh, I mean, are we are we going to see anything? Uh, Do we get a sneak peek into anything that you're
1: working on? <laughs> um, you know, so so my my dissertation research is is all about the the theory of combinatorial species and how it relates to functional programming. Um,
0: you actually just finished so, a paper, didn't you?
1: I did, yeah. So um, along with uh, Jacques Carette, and my advisor, Stephanie Weirich, we just submitted a paper to MSFP, uh, Mathematically Structured Functional Programming, um, that, that's about this um, sort of taking combinatorial species as a foundation for um, for data types, or for certain kinds of data types.
0: Could you give us a, a quick intro to combinatorial species?
1: Um, no, <laughs> no,
0: but I can, but I can tell you,
1: I can tell you sort of why they're interesting or, or what the what the point is. Sure, um, I won't tell you any definitions, but you can read my paper for that. But, um, so I mean, combinatorial species are a very general uh, framework for describing structures, right? I mean, much like algebraic data types are a generic framework for describing certain kinds of structures, right? And combinatorial species are much much more general than that but the the sort of big innovation it was an innovation at the time in in combinatorics, and I think this is kind of what our our paper is about. I think this could be a cool innovation in the space of describing data structures as well uh, is that combinatorial species are or structures built with combinatorial species are explicitly labeled, so you have sort of positions in the in these shapes that can hold data, but those positions have labels. Um, and you can actually manipulate the labels in certain ways, and you know part of the reason this was interesting in combinatorics is that it it, it gave a kind of for the first time a, a really concrete way to talk about so-called unlabeled structures. Everyone thought they knew what was meant by unlabeled structures, um, but it turns out really to talk about them rigorously, you have to talk about sort of equivalence classes of labeled structures under under certain relabelings. So the idea is that that thinking of data structures in in programming as being these labeled shapes filled with data will let us unify a bunch of uh, different things. So like you can talk about algebraic data types and you can also talk about arrays and they both fit really nicely into this framework. There's other things you can do with it. Um, I mean, in a sense, we're just kind of starting to explore this. Um, So, so yeah, I mean, I I think we'll be make, I'll be making a, a copy of that available pretty soon. Um, and, uh, you know, and there'll be more to come. So, you know, I, I had this library called Species. Um, it, it's on Hackage. I doubt it compiles anymore. Um, but that was really just about sort of computing with the mathematical abstraction of Species. Um, but, uh, you know, we have a whole bunch of Haskell code right now. It's not in any kind of state to be released as a library, but I think there could be some really cool libraries coming out of this that would let you work with data structures in some some cool generic ways um, that are you know maybe not possible or not not easy to do uh, at the moment. So Okay. Well we're about out of time. Uh, but
2: I wanted to thank you Brent Yorgi for joining us on the HaskellCast talking about diagrams. Uh, thanks for the type classopedia. I think I, I say thank you on behalf of a lot of people for for writing that. You've been listening to The Haskell Cast, Episode 5, recorded on January 17th, 2014. For links and information about the episode, go to www.haskellcast.com.